As you know, I, I teach marketing and ethics and a lot of marketing-related classes at, business, at uh, Walla Walla University School of Business. And so you may wonder, you know, why, why am I teaching, you know, we're, we're here for the family track, so why am I talking about marketing and, and some of the other things? Well, the Lord says, he said to consider the lilies of the field. So I'm considering the lilies in my field <laughs> because the work that I do has really illuminated and given me an understanding, a perspective on my experience as a mother, as a wife, and I'm always looking for ways to bridge the disciplines because I believe that knowledge and wisdom are all connected in some way. And I think that we do a disservice by teaching things like math and biology and marketing and business and all of the different disciplines separate from each other, completely detached. Uh, because, you know, you often hear I, when I was homeschooling my kids, uh, you know, I would start to bring in interesting, interesting connections between math and science or history and Bible. And, Mom, what are you doing? This is Bible. This isn't history. Or this is math. This isn't science. How come you're, you know, trying to make all these connections? And I would say this is how we get to understand better who God is. You know, he, all of these things that are connected, yes, we, we may look at things from one perspective or one um, you know, vantage point, but we're always moving and looking at the same Lord, the one who created us and gave us an understanding. He gives us an understanding of who we are. So because I am deeply entrenched right now and had just come out of teaching actually three marketing-related classes, uh, I thought I would share with you some of the things that I have learned about the power of presence. And actually, Mark is going to continue with that same theme uh, for the second half of this. So we do have a, a method to our, our madness. Um, and, and there really is an overall theme that maybe you're picking out. We've talked a lot today about engagement. Okay, we, This morning we talked about moral engagement or actually ways that we can be morally disengaged. Uh, the power of presence is a little bit about um, not just physical engagement but psychological engagement and connection. And so we're continuing on with that idea that if you're going to have powerful relationships, whether it be as a parent um, or in a marital relationship or even with your um, close friends and family, uh, that engagement is a really important factor in, in those relationships. So that's what I'm, you know, I'm going to be talking about a lot of different things, but I just want to make sure that you make that overall connection now that what I'm really talking about is presence and engagement. But in order to get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a primer on what marketing is or what it should be. This is one of the most misunderstood areas on the planet. Uh, marketing is an idea, uh, but it is also a strategy. I teach it as uh, a strategic set of actions and processes. Now, most of my students come in thinking that marketing is going to be about why well, we want to learn how to be creative and slap up a good poster and get people to come to our events, get them to like what we do, to see the value in what we do. And they are often quite disappointed that what I teach them to do is how to think, how to ask questions, how to gather information, how to identify what information is important and useful uh, for in you know to accomplish certain types of ends, and of course in marketing we're really talking about it boils down to four things: we are creating value, uh, we are capturing value when we attach prices to things, um, we are delivering value, and we're communicating value. And it really is not any different in our family lives, is it? I mean. Don't we hope that if we have something good to pass on to our children that we are creating and capturing and delivering and communicating value? So that brings us to consideration of what is value in the first place. And that's kind of the direction that I'm going to take today is, is to talk about what value is. But I have to kind of take you through the steps a little to get there. So marketing breaks down basically into three different phases. Okay. Planning, implementation, and control. Now, if we're wise, our lives will break down into very similar 
phases. Okay? We have a, a planning stage, or we're always thinking in terms of planning ahead and not just kind of haphazardly going through our lives. Um, of course, we have to actually do something at some stage. And then if we're wise, we're going to look back and evaluate. We're going to look and, and say, how did, this, did we achieve our objectives here? How well did, th did this go? Uh, is there anything that we could have done better? What do we need to adjust? Now, the planning stage is a very important stage that often gets overlooked. The students want to jump right ahead to the promotion in the information stage. That's putting up the posters, being creative. You know, that's advertising. That's what everybody thinks marketing is, and that's not what marketing is about. Promotion and advertising is just a very tiny aspect of what marketing is or what communicating and creating value is. In the beginning, we have to look at our mission and examine what are we trying to accomplish here as a business or an organization or a nonprofit or for us as a family or as husband and wife or on behalf of our children. What is our real mission? What is the overarching purpose for everything that we do? And we're going to use that as the standard by which we measure everything else that comes after. Without that sense of mission, and in fact, there's a, a fantastic nonprofit marketer who, who writes, you know, the market is always right, which means the market will always, they know what they want. And you can't generally change that too much. It's the same with children. You know, they know what they want, and they're pretty vocal about it. And, and you're trying to change their needs and change their wants and make them want good things, right? And then as you have them, you find, why this is really not an easy thing to do, to shape their values, to make them want their vegetables instead of their donuts. Uh, you know, you find that they have certain tendencies and you find how helpless you might be to accomplish these changes in their lives, which is very humbling then when you realize what the Lord goes through in trying to make changes in our lives and, and to communicate and implement value in our lives. But having a sense of that mission, this, this writer says, he says, um, the market is always right, but the market is not always right for you. It's your mission that ultimately guides you. Okay, if that's, and that should be true of any business. Now, it's also important to understand the situation that you're in. I'm going to talk a little bit more about each of these and try to illuminate a little more why, how they apply to the family health uh, aspect of things. In the implementation stage, we look out at the broader audience and we say, you know what, we cannot effectively reach everybody. There are certain people who are going to respond in a certain way to certain things by virtue of who they are, by virtue of their needs and wants and interests and, and psychology and personalities and preferences and cultures and, 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 the, and the social venues that they have grown up in. Not everybody responds the same to the same message. And so understanding who your audience is. So we look at different variables that break people in to groups and that's really where I'm going to focus today when I talk about presence because it really you know presence is a segmentation variable once we have our groups identified we may tailor our messages for different groups now it may be one overriding message that relates to our mission but we're going to speak to each of those groups in a way that they can understand best now I, I have four children if if I had had only our first oldest daughter. Now she was tough for the first four years, but at age four she became just literally overnight mellow, started putting herself to bed. Now I hadn't changed anything, but she became very easy to deal with, very compliant. That was her personality. Then two, three, and four came along <laughs> And if I had thought, if I'd only had our oldest, we could have very easily said, we were just really the best parents that, that the world has ever seen because she was so easy and so compliant. Um, later on, we started realizing, you know, there are issues on the inside to, to deal with that she had to deal with as an adult. Um, and she is. She's just a dear, precious, precious um, young woman now. Um, but the other three that came along, you know, they added some interesting things into the mix. And a few, you know, at least two of them inherited my temper directly. Um, Emily Beth is much more like Mark, does not like conflict at all and will avoid it at all costs. So we've all had to learn. And then Adriana, the baby, you know, has, has inherited a little bit of each of us and is just trying to make sense of it all. Okay, so I have four, five in my life, very distinct audiences 
that I have had to tailor my messages to and 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 learn to communicate value too. And of course, you know, we look back and Mark has shared uh, his part of the story, but I look back over our lives and realize, you know, I was really very focused on communicating value to my children, not always so focused on really uh, creating value for him. And so we both have changed in major ways over the past years. We have come to realize what's what's truly important in our lives and the Lord has changed both of our hearts in, in, a, in a major way. Anyway, at the control stage, we look back and we say, okay, uh, we dropped the ball here. Some, maybe some adjustments need to be made, and we evaluate and, and move on accordingly. Now, this is the, basically the um, definition of marketing that I have my students learn. Marketing encompasses, this is from the AMA, American Marketing Association. It encompasses all of the plans and processes involved in creating value, which is product, capturing value, which is price, delivering value, which is the place that you get whatever it is that you get, uh, and communicating value, which is the promotional aspects, in order to facilitate an exchange of value plus for value plus. Okay, now most definitions say value for value, but I use the definition value plus for value plus, and I'll explain as I go why I do that. So the question is raised, was Jesus a marketer? We could just as easily say, was he a mathematician? Was he a biologist? Was he a psychologist? You know, what, what extent of wisdom did he have? Where does all wisdom come from? I believe that all of our wisdom comes from him. Um, so just looking back over that strategy, we know that he had a plan. Right? He looked ahead and he had a plan. He knew what the plan was. He said, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, many plans, I love this verse, many plans occupy the mind of a man, but the Lord's purposes will prevail. They always prevail, regardless of what our plans are. Um, so I have to ask you now, you, know, you are each in different stages of you know, different types of relationships, different age groups, you know, some have children, older children, younger children, you know, newlyweds or, or about to be married. You know, do you, have you contemplated the importance of having a plan? Uh, better yet for the Christian, the question is, do you know the plan? Uh, because it says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Do, have we taken the time, you know, on a daily basis to get to know what that plan is all about so that our lives, our choices, our values are in accordance with that plan that is all part of identifying our mission, understanding the context in which we're doing our business or our child raising or conducting our marriages or whatever it may be. Um, so when we have that sense of we have, we have made some plans, but they're not necessarily in accordance with his plan, then we feel a tension between our plan and his plan. And which plan always prevails? His plan. His plan always, which is such a comforting thing to me that I may kick and scream and buck and fight, but his plans will prevail and he's promised that he will do it uh, in spite of me and hopefully with my full acknowledgement and peaceful cooperation. Uh, certainly my internal spiritual life is much better if I know what his plan is and I have embraced it. Uh, if I let him define uh, my mission as a mother or as a wife. Now we know that Christ understood his mission at a very young age. We all wish that we had at, at age 12. Sometimes we had a vague sense of it. Um, sometimes we see indications that our children have a little bit of precocious understanding uh, of things. I, I've seen that in my children at different stages. But Jesus, we know, at a very young age, understood his mission. It says his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, 
When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, I cannot imagine having left lost track. Of, you know, I was, I never let my children out of my sight for two seconds. But those were probably different days. You had the kids running and playing, and you know, you figured they were all together, and everybody was trailing along, and, and but he hadn't. He had lingered back. So now it was that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So he was there already in anticipation and understanding of what his mission is. So we know he had a plan. We know he had a mission, which means he definitely had the nails down for the, the uh, planning stage of his marketing strategy. Do you know your mission? Do you have an overall mission? I ask my students uh, to write, and I would ch challenge you when you leave this place to write down what your mission is. If you're a couple, if you're a family, to identify what is your mission. What would you say your mission is that can define and serve as the standard by which you measure every single one of your actions and choices and values? It's important, I think, to put that in writing, and I have all of my students do that at the beginning of the year, to write down what is your personal mission. And I, and I get some beautiful, beautiful responses from these students uh, at the university, never failed to surprise me. Many of them, you know, wanting to focus on lives of service to Christ. Uh, you know, time after time, I'll have 35 students in a class, and I say um, nine-tenths of them write something like that in there. And this is at Walla Walla University. Um, and you'll, you'll see the sense of purpose and mission in young people that we sometimes overlook and don't recognize. What they may be struggling with is the next stage, is how do you implement this? But at least in the early stages of their lives, very often they do have a sense of we want to do good things. And we have a sense of what those good things might look like. Uh, again, though, we need not only need to know our mission, but to understand is our mission in accordance with the Lord's mission. And you know, studying our Bibles helps us to have a deeper understanding of what that is. Now, we, one of the things that I have students do, and they, they just hate this part, okay? This is the part that you just hate in college because you're going to have to write a paper. You know, you're going to have to do some research. Uh, this is not something you can just kind of fake your way through off the top of your head. Or if you do, I'll, tell you, I'll call you on it, and I'll make you do it over again. So I often have them rewrite these portions. We do what is called a situation analysis. Uh, and it breaks down into a CD step. You know, I'll say, okay, you are doing business in the world somewhere in context, okay, and that context is varied. A lot of different things out there that could affect how well your business goes. Same with the family. We raise our families in contexts, cultural contexts, demographic contexts, um, social context, I'm trying to think, ST, technological contexts, economic contexts. Some of us are you know, higher or lower on the economic scale. Um, P is political and legal contexts. When we operate blindly with no kind of sense of what that context is, sometimes the communication doesn't go well. Sometimes we are not able to create value like we wish we could or communicate value like we wish we could to our children. Now here's a really good example if you want to know what that really means. Because this is what I'm talking about external context. Not internal, but external. External to the company. External to the family. External to the couple. So this is the story I tell my students. Um, and, it, and it's told in a, in a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, he says there was a time during World War II where an Asian man showed up in a town, I think in either Vermont or Maine, and he asked somebody in the town where the highest point was because he wanted to survey the surrounding area. So they told him, and he went up to this high area, 
And pretty soon the rumor was going around that there was a Japanese spy in town who was surveying the country, you know, side, so that they could figure out where to drop bombs in Maine or Vermont. Okay? Now, that wasn't the case, but there was an external factor, an external context that influenced people to interpret facts in a certain way. What was that external factor? The existence, yes, the existence of a world war. And so, you know, it colored everybody's interpretation of facts. Are there things in our lives that color and shape and shift our interpretation of what is or isn't real? And, and, and can we assume that those factors that shape our views are the same for our children? Are we aware of what the situation is? Have we done a situation analysis on our own children or on, on our own husbands or wives or, uh, you know, understanding, you, need, you do counseling, you know, sometimes when you get ready to get married. Um, but it's good to understand the situation, to do a situation analysis, understand the context um, that, that someone has been raised in or that they're dealing with and living in. Um, and so I do this a lot. I talk with my children, asking them questions because I used to have them at home every day. We shared the same context. And now that they're in school, I don't know what they're dealing with. And the only way that I can know is to ask and to probe. And especially with a 16-year-old son, he's not going to offer that information. He's an introvert. He's very quiet. He does not like to discuss anything that makes him uncomfortable. And so those discussions that I have with him, it's very easy. Oh, how was your day? Fine, Mom. You know, and there it, there it ends. Right? You think that everything's good. Our family's doing really well. Uh-oh, where did it go? Oh, it's right here. <laughs> Let me turn it around. Put it right here instead. How's that? Okay, thanks. So I have to probe a little with him. I can't just assume. Now, that, that takes some work, right? Don't we sometimes just want to assume that if the other person says, yeah, everything's great, that everything's great? You know, that was probably modus operandi, for the first 24 years of our marriage, at least in terms of, of Mark, I was probing too much, and he was not probing at all because <laughs> he really didn't want to know the situation. And so it was enough for him to hear, oh, yeah, everything is fine. And so we learn to understand each other over time, uh, and it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort. It makes a difference, and it makes a difference in terms of the spiritual lives of our, of our family, you know, many of us have family members. We would love, maybe, you know, we have had a conversion experience. We want to share something. We want to communicate this value with maybe a mother or a father or brothers and sisters or uncles and aunts or our own children. Have we taken the time to understand what our mission is, to understand the context, to understand what the world is that they're living in because it may be very different than, than what we see. They're seeing through a different lens, a different filter. Uh, we know that God understands the context. He didn't have to do research on this. He didn't have to write a long paper, <laughs> you know, double-spaced, one-inch margins, okay? He, we actually have, you know, we have a deep, he shows us just how much context he understands when he gave us the Bible, right? He really understood it. But it says, I love this, Job 28, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. We don't have that kind of wisdom. If you want to do research, sometimes you've got to go on your knees to the Lord and say, I do not understand this person at all. I cannot understand my child. I can't understand my spouse. I need a situational understanding here that no book can give me. I need to even know what questions to ask. Because the questions you ask tend to shape the answers that you're going to get. So where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where wisdom dwells. So he understands the situation, and he's our source. So do you understand the situations of the people that you are building relationships with? Now, this, this can get kind of interesting. I've done it in, in, at another seminar uh, where I actually did a segmentation uh, exercise. I kind of went back and forth as to whether to do it here, but I'm just going to describe it to you. The segmenting, again, is where we use different variables. We'll say, okay, we, we need a group. We may, we may use different variables like demographics, 
so you know, pick a group, maybe 18 to 25, we'll, and we'll use that group, and then we identify other things that m they might have in common, because we're trying to figure out how they're going to respond to certain types of value. What value are they actually seeking? That's really an important thing to know. What value are people seeking before you try to offer them value on a platter? But we know that Christ segmented the market, and it says in the end he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. But that's not necessarily the segmentation I'm talking about. That's the ultimate segmentation, right? This is when, this is when everything comes apart and, and everything's done at that point. Uh, but sometimes what I'll do is I'll bring in a bag of candy. I do this with my students. So I'll pass around the bag of candy. It'll have a big mix like this, and of course I have um, people who like healthy foods, so I've started to include nuts, prunes, and oranges <laughs> in the mix as well. And I ask them all, and I'll, I'll usually have a class, principal of the marketing class, that's maybe 30, 35 students, sometimes 45 students. And I'll say, pick a candy, and then I want you to all find your group. So the Butterfinger people are here, the Nestle Crunch people are here, the Snickers people are over here, okay? And they, so they pick their candy, and they find their groups, they all get together, and then I say, okay, I want you to find two other things that everyone in your group has in common, okay, other than gender or you know, something similar, other than you all go to Walla Walla University, you know, it has to be something that they have to find beyond the fact that they chose the same kind of, of candy. And they use this, and I use this to teach them that, you know, the presence of these candy bars was what segmented them. Okay, the presence of a candy bar determined that one was going to be walking over here and joining this group and another one was going to be walking over here and joining this group. That is the power, a little glimpse into the power of presence, which is the title for this presentation. Okay, now I just want you to kind of hold that in the back of, of your mind. But we use this to say we try to find people with similar interests. Now, I'm, unless I'm selling candy bars, I'm not going to use the candy bars to segment my groups. So I might have com different segment, different variables that I use, and I could get completely different groups from the same larger group. Okay? But depending on what I am offering them, what value I'm offering them, I find out what interests they have, what commonalities they have as a group, and it helps me to communicate with them. There's some segmentation happening just here because we have a family yes. industry track or a yeah, exactly. We're doing segmentation, and then we have certain messages designed for each of those groups. So this gives them, you know, they, 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 they enjoy this, but uh, there, there's a deeper meaning behind it, and I always take them into this, this idea that presence is a segmentation variable. I teach them that, you know, by virtue of whatever business you're in, and maybe you should be careful in choosing the type of business you're going to be in, your presence in the marketplace is going to segment the market. Okay? You enter the market, and when you, if you notice you enter a room, did anybody go to like a regular high school or academy? Okay, where, where did everybody go? Where did you go to high school? Placer High in Auburn. Placer High in Auburn. In which one? Modesto, Auburn. Modesto, what do we have? Monterey Bay. Monterey Bay, we've got a lot of them. Anybody else? Which is it? Homeschooled. Homeschooled. Okay, and so were, so were ours. They went into academy later on. Okay, so those of you who've been high school especially, but even middle, middle school, you know that you'll have one year and everybody's kind of segmented themselves off into groups, right? You get the cliques. And then in the next year, a new kid comes in, okay? And suddenly it kind of unsettles things and the groups kind of change. Okay, and that person has, their presence has the power to just really change the groups around. Everybody responds differently to everything because of the presence of that, of that person. Presence itself is a segmentation variable. Now, this was a very powerful epiphany for me because I realized, you know, you walk into a room, you know, people are sizing you up. They're looking at what you wear. They're looking at the expression on your face. That's something I have to work on because I always look very solemn. And you know, some I, I had to work hard on not being one of those teachers that's unapproachable. Because yeah, I just have this, you know, just get with the program kind of look. <laughs> I mean, even to my even to my kids, you know, I realize that I just I really just need to lighten up a little if I want to, you know. And and I, I learned this a long time ago. My nephews, when I was in high school, I babysat my nephews. 
uh, over a summer, and they were little. And at that point, I think I was 16 or 17, and I got myself hooked on a soap opera. Bad idea, but I was hooked on this soap opera, and I was watching it with my nephews. Now, the, during this time, the, there's always some bad villainous woman who's destroying everybody's lives in a soap opera. Um, and so in my mind, at 16, she was truly a bad villainous woman who was destroying everybody's lives. Uh, but my nephews, uh, one day, we, I was going to turn it on, they turned to me and they said, we love Liz, that was her name. We love Liz. I was like, what are you talking about? How can you love Liz? She's destroying everybody's lives. And they said, she smiles all the time. She smiles all the time. That was a, now, I, I learned that lesson at 16, and it's still been hard for me to realize that if I wanted to communicate value to my children, and it, my value makes me miserable, guess what? They're not going to embrace my value. <laughs> That's probably the most practical you know, advice I can give you right now is to, to you know, if your value is something you really, truly value, it better bring some joy and peace into your life if you want other people to embrace it. But anyway, presence itself is a segmentation variable. We walk into a room and people will respond to us differently based on, of course, we're talking about their context, right? They walk in and they have certain points of view. They, they may look and say, well, you're wearing a certain kind of clothes, therefore you're a certain type of person. You have a certain look on your face. You're a certain type of person. Therefore, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to respond to you accordingly. That is segmentation. And there is no question that when Christ walked into a room, his presence segmented the room into groups. And he knew each group and each in the, in really each individual's response to him and could communicate value to each person with that kind of knowledge. Imagine if we had that kind of knowledge. We can have more knowledge than we do if we take the time to ask questions of the people that we're interacting with. And, and that is something I've had to learn as a mother to take the time to ask the questions so that I have information that's valuable that I can actually use to do better, to be a better wife, to be a more committed and loving mother, to not just assume that they understand that what I'm giving to them is valuable, that I actually have a responsibility not just to create the value and to deliver it, but to communicate it in a certain way as well. And that's really what marketing is all about. Now, we know also that he knew his target markets. Again, we, you can spend millions of dollars to get the information you need in marketing research to figure out who are your target markets, what are their common interests, you know, what types of things do they like to watch or do, you know, are they outdoors people? But we know that Jesus you know, knew us in, in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart for my holy purpose. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. So he's already done his marketing research. Do you know your target audiences? Do you know your children well? Do you know your spouse well? Or are you just assuming that you know them? Now, of course, Mark and I, we've been married for 24 years, so this is our anniversary we're celebrating. And it has been a wonderful 24 years. There's no question. I was excited when I met him. I've been thrilled to be married to him. You know, even if we'd never gone through the miraculous changes that we've experienced in our life, I would still want to be married to this man, okay? But I realized over the past year, as he was starting to come to this hyper-awareness of who God is and what God was doing in his life, that I realized that I had projected onto him a lot of my own ideas about who he was, and that as he started to open up and share with me that, you know, really I've struggled with this area in my life all, you know, in terms of being real and, and, um, and, and comprehending what a wretch I am. You know, in my mind, I was like, of course he knows what a wretch he is. We're all wretches. Now, my context was I had been through that experience when I was 25 years old. And so it's very easy to go through an experience and then assume that everybody else has gone through the same experience and sees everything, you know, if they would just, like I say, get with the program, they'd see it exactly like you do. And yet they necess don't necessarily have that same experience. And so and here I'm, 24 years of marriage, and I'm still getting to know amazing, fascinating things about him. I, re I remember the, there was a funny one because he, he told me, so he has some ringing in his ears, you know, mild case of, I don't know, tinnitus or tinnitus. I don't know how to say it. 
And, um, and he's, all, he's had it for a very long time. And, and two years ago, I remember, he, he told me this, you know, that he had this tinnitus and, or tinnitus, tinnitus. <laughs> I was like, you're kidding. We've been married at that point for 22 years, and I never knew this before. Like, I would assume that I already know everything about him. Don't we sometimes get like that with God? I've read my Bible through. I know everything there is to know <laughs> about who God is. Not necessarily. There's always more to know. That's the wonderful thing about marriage. That's the wonderful thing about having children is the constant changing and growing and that opportunity. You know, Ellen White says we're going to spend eternity growing and learning and being excited about the new things that we, you know, I'm just amazed. I can ponder a verse and, and new things will jump out at me from this one verse. That's, you know, meditating on scripture, meditating on your law. You know, you can have epiphanies on things in scripture that you thought you already had gotten years ago. Um, but do you know your target audience? Are you asking questions? Are you even trying to know your target audience? Or are you just assuming that all learning has ended now and now we're going to proceed to deliver our value to anyone who will listen? Doesn't generally go very well. Doesn't work with target audiences. Doesn't work with children. Doesn't work with spouses. So we know, so we, we, we look at these. This is called the marketing mix. These are basically our tool tools of, you know, once we've done our planning, once we've done our targeting and segmentation, um, that then we can say, okay, we're going to create value. We're going to create products that meet actual needs of people. We're going to capture them in terms of value, which we say we're going to set a price on them, and hopefully they'll be willing to pay that price, whatever it is. Uh, we're going to deliver it to them. We want to make sure that the type of shampoo they need is right where they need it on the Walmart shelf when they need it because if it's not, what will happen? They'll buy something else and they may lose their brand loyalty to us and go somewhere else. So delivery, each one of these is very important. This is the implementation stage of the marketing strategy. And then, of course, we need to communicate that there is this value. This shampoo is on the shelves right where you need it at the price that you need it and you can get it there today. You know, it's your convenience. Uh, but we know, of course, that the value that Christ communicated to us that he created uh, in and for and through us and, and the price that was put on that value is huge, much, much deeper, much broader, much more significant than a bottle of shampoo. Uh, we also know that he, and I love this, he communicated value honestly. He did not oversell. Now, it, interestingly, what can be your greatest enemy in a relationship, whether it's with a customer or whether it's with your children or your spouse, is to create expectations that will not be met. Okay, so we all use to, you know, when we're determining whether we had a good experience with something, we measure it according to our expectations. Okay, so if I communicate tremendous amount of value and I don't deliver that value, it's going to be worse than if I had never communicated anything at all. Because I've set up high expectations, the expectations are not met, then people are very angry with my brand. They may also be angry with my spiritual values. They may be angry with my version of who God is. Uh, because I set up certain expectations, did not deliver, you know, my children are looking at who I am and what I have to say and determining a lot about who they believe God is by how I interact with them. But it's four o'clock. That was my computer. Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I get lonely and I just wanted to talk to you. So. <laughs> um, anyway, but we know Christ does not, and, and I have to really emphasize this, and I think it's not emphasized enough with Christians because Christ says, do not call evil good and good evil. Do not put darkness for light and light for darkness. Do not put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter because you're going to have problems if you do this. Now, people come into marketing thinking, well, we just we want to get a good marketing campaign out there. We want to build it up to be the latest, greatest, best, most wonderful thing, right? And I say, no, that's really not what marketing is all about. We're about truly, honestly, genuinely creating value, okay? Truly, honestly putting the right price on it delivering it, and then communicating it in an honest way. And that throws students. They just don't even know what to do with it because to them, it's all about advertising. It's about putting a spin on it. 
don't we do that sometimes in the Christian world with the way we present the gospel? Do we really need to be putting a spin on the gospel if it really is of value? You know, isn't, if it really is of value, isn't it enough value that we can communicate it honestly for what it really is and, and not create expectations that will later dash uh, people's assessment of what it is? We also know that there was an exchange so that was one of the elements of the strat of uh, marketing strategy. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. His gave, he gave his life for ours. Now, at this point, I have the students write a paper, you know, just a paragraph or so, and I ask them, so was Jesus a marketer? And inevitably, I get the same types of responses. Now, if I were going to ask you if Jesus is a marketer, based on what I've just taken you through, what might you say? Do you think he was a marketer? Okay. Um, what about this value for value issue? When I buy a pack of gum, say it's $1.39, gum has gone up. <laughs> if I buy a pack of gum, and I give my $1.39 for the gum, am I wanting $1.39 worth of gum? Yes. yes. Do I only want $1.39 worth of gum? <laughs> okay. You think I, who, want, who thinks I want more than $1.39 worth of gum? Okay. If I don't want a dollar thirty-nine worth of gum. If I if I don't want more than that, why would I give up my dollar thirty-nine for the gum? If I'm not a, pardon me. Okay, okay. Explain that to me. <laughs> this is a good twist. Yeah. Okay. So I have to buy more than I than I wanted of the dollar thirty-nine. But do I hope that I'm going to get? Yeah. Is that, okay, you just actually put a great twist on it because at that point you're willing to, to buy $1.39 worth of gum for one stick, right? Okay, so I'm definitely wanting more than my $1.39 worth if I'm going to buy. I certainly want more than one stick's worth when I put, plunk my $1.39 down. Okay, why would we ever give up something of equal value for something of equal value? In our estimation, why would we... What would motivate us to do that? I mean, don't we always expect that if I'm going to give up my dollar or my dollar 39, it's because I value my dollar 39 less than I value having that gum at that given moment. It's kind of like I said earlier, I have certain values because I have a certain value, I make a certain choice. So at a given moment, that dollar 39 might be worth more to me, I mean, less to me than the stick of gum for whatever reason. I need fresh breath, I, whatever, okay. Now, might there be a time where that dollar thing, I do want some gum, but I decide that my dollar 39 is worth more to me. Why might I decide that my dollar 39, <laughs> she's pointing at her, why, why might my dollar 39 stay in my sticky fingers and I'm not gonna give it up for that pack of gum even though I want that gum? Yeah, at that, that moment, so maybe different between the two of you, right? At that moment, my perceived value of the gum is less than the $1.39. Maybe I'm trying to save money to buy, buy a house. Okay, that $1.39 is going to add up for a down payment on my house. Um, so where does value come from then? What is value? Who defines value? Yeah, do, do we? I think maybe we do. Yeah, if I, so when I put a price on something, we call it capturing value, and I say I'm going to charge you $1.39 for the gum, I'm hoping that I'm setting it at a price where a lot of people are going to feel that my gum is worth more to them than the $1.39 was at that given moment. But guess what? Their $1.39 is worth more to me because I need to use it to invest in my business and make more gum and stay in business and pay my employees' salaries and, you know, whatever that might be. So we both have received value plus for value plus, right? Because the value is determined by the two parties 
to the exchange. Okay, so that value really, is there such thing as value in inherently? Is there anything in this piano? This, could we say this piano is inherently worth, I don't know, what would it be, $10,000, $5,000? We talk that way all the time, don't we? This is worth this much. This is worth that much. What are we really saying? Ah, yeah, Some, somebody would be willing to pay that much for it, which means the value is being defined by the parties to the exchange, and that capturing happens in the moment of the exchange. When I give you the gum, you give me the money, we both perceive that we received value plus for value plus, not just value for value, because I'm not going to give you my dollar thirty-nine unless the gum is worth more to me. Now, just hold on to that thought, because this is, to me, one of the most beautiful epiphanies that I have ever had. <laughs> it is the most comforting thought to me, and I'm hoping that it will be similarly comforting to you. Okay, so we've talked about who defines value. Have you ever thought about, so the students generally will say to me, well, I, we don't think that Jesus was a marketer because it breaks down in this whole value for value thing that you're talking about, this principle. They'll say, Christ gave his life. He gave something of infinitely more value for us, and we have absolutely nothing to offer him. What we gave back to him was worthless. Okay? Isn't that how we sometimes represent the exchange in the Christian world? So it occurred to me as I was teaching, I was standing up in front of my students teaching this concept to them, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is really something. Perhaps it's the same with the Lord and his perception of us. He gave his life for us. There is an exchange, just like we exchanged the $1.39 for the pack of gum. Okay, If it's true that the parties to the exchange are the ones that determine the value, then at the moment that Christ made that exchange for us, who defined our value? He did. Does that, can we then say that we have nothing to offer? Is it us that is determining our value in the first place? No, it's the person who's willing to pay the $5,000 for the piano that places the value on that piano. It is the God who was willing to give his son to die for us that determines the value of our lives. Now, what's amazing and beautiful to me about that is that he did it while we were yet sinners, knowing that we were yet sinners, loving us while we were yet sinners, and placed an infinite value on our lives and said, I love you this much. If we are not willing to give our $1.39 for a pack of gum unless the gum is worth more, would it be any different with him? Would he be willing to give his life if it were just a life-for-a-life exchange? Whatever it may mean to him, shouldn't we also assume that if he made that exchange, that whatever he got back was also worth more to him as well? Now, what's beautiful about that is that it means we we don't determine our value. For ourselves, we also don't determine the value of anybody else. And we also don't assess what people's value is based on what they've done, what they wear, what they say, what they don't say, what their failures are, what their talents are, what their gifts are. We do not determine that value, and which is liberating when you start realizing you're dealing with your children. If you have this perspective on your children or on your spouses and you're thinking, okay, their value was of infinite value to Christ who placed value on them, aren't you going to interact with them differently than you would if you are looking at them and you're the one determining their value based on whether they have lived up to your expectations or not? And yet that's very often what we do for each other in family situations, in church situations, and we wonder why people say, I don't want your value. I don't want this value. Why would I want to live with a God like that for eternity? You know, they they see how we treat each other, how we place such little value on on each other, and what we're really doing is misrepresenting who God is. This has vast implications for our ability to communicate value to our children. Um, You know, I've sent, 
you know, as I learn these things, because I'm always teaching my children, so they know that they're going to get texts throughout the day of whatever has occurred to me at any given moment. And so, you know, I'll come to an end of class, something like this will occur to me. And, and a number of these things have you know, been really kind of hitting me hard in recent months and years. And I'll send them to my kids because I want them to understand this. If I have failed to communicate value to them in any, any meaningful way, if I have mi misrepresented who God is and how he values them in any way, I want to set the record straight. So I'll send them, you know, little texts about these things, and they'll send me that, Mom, thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that's beautiful. That's so comforting. I sent, I sent the one, you know, that I shared with you this morning earlier about what, what we talked about um, value, you know, the value of a value. And I sent that to Adriana this morning and she's like, mom, I just needed that just now. I needed to know that right now um, because they struggle. We all struggle. You know, she's with friends on her way to Texas. I don't know what her situation is right now, but I am going to be present in her life no matter how far apart we are at any given moment. That's, we talk, you know, we complain about the digital age. We complain about, you know, kids on Facebook and kids on this and that. You know, this is an opportunity to, to stay in touch and to communicate with our spouses and with our loved ones and to be part of the conversation, you know, to, to communicate value, to create value, to be, to be really ever-present in their lives. And hopefully by that presence, you know, a well-timed text to segment them <laughs> away from groups that we may not want them to be affiliated with at any given moment. Um, you know, the, this whole idea of the power of presence that Christ comes into our life and, and changes our perspective, changes our view, changes our ideas of what value is, not to mention what we value that shapes all of our choices. I mean, that's, that's huge. And yet these are very simple concepts that we can share with our families, with our children, and, and with people in our churches to give hope. To me, they're very hopeful, hopeful messages. Um, and, and that's where I want to leave you now, because Mark is going to go on and talk a little bit more about the power of presence. Um, but we know that God is the one who defines our value. To me, that's very comforting and liberating. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, 1 John 1, 9. Um, so we're, we're going to end right now. We'll pick up where I left off. Only Mark is going to kind of take the baton from this point forward, and he's going to continue to talk about presence because that is something that has been a very meaningful lesson in our family, something that we have understood more deeply over the past year. So we'll take a few minutes break. Um, uh, let me just pray, and then we'll take about a 10-minute break. Thank you, Father, for your presence in this room now, for your presence in our lives. Please open our eyes and help us to be able to, to see and sense that presence and to know that it's from you. Please help us to represent that presence to each other in everything that we do and we say with each other, with the people that we love and in every relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.